from WNYC in New York. This is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield. The week began with a dose of media coup déjà vu. Now, a new series of investigations reveals the offshore financial dealings of some of the world's wealthiest people and biggest corporations. The stories are tied to what's being called the Paradise Papers. No, not the Panama Papers. That was last year's massive leak that exposed tax dodges by corporations and rich individuals through offshore accounts. The Paradise Papers are a much bigger trove of documents that revealed even more rich people avoiding even more taxes. Nine trillion dollars in taxes, it's estimated. Oh, plus this little nugget. One of many investigations getting a lot of attention, the investments of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. Ross kept a stake in a shipping company called Navigator Holdings after he became secretary. One of Navigator's top clients is the Russian energy company Seabor, whose owners include Vladimir Putin's son-in-law and Kremlin-linked oligarchs on the U.S. sanctions list. To be clear, this is not an allegation of wrongdoing, but proof that the super-rich get to play by a different set of rules. As President Trump's chief economic advisor Gary Cohn put it, This is the way that the world works. Just not for you. Marina Walker-Guevara is the deputy director for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which has just published the Paradise Papers. Marina, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. Thank you for having me. We often talk about journalism shining a light in dark places of criminality, corruption, and abuse. The Paradise Papers seems more like a case of shining a light in dark places of legality. No immediate signs of criminal activity here, right? Exactly. A lot of these structures are legal, and that is the biggest scandal and the biggest revelation that in 2017, a vast portion of our economic life occurs in secret, stashed away in little islands in the Caribbean, in the Pacific Ocean, not only skirting taxation, but also regulation. If it's all legal and above board, why all the secrecy? Why doesn't Queen Elizabeth want to know that she's got part of her fortune stashed in the Caribbean? Perhaps one of the reasons why the state of Queen Elizabeth didn't want to do these kind of transactions in Britain as opposed to a tax haven was because one of the investments they were using was in a company accused of preying on poor people. Oh, it was a rent-to-own company that charges poor people large monthly fees to rent furniture or a television set, and they end up paying huge premiums over the actual value. Yes, exactly. Predatory lending. And usually what public figures are doing in the secret world of offshore tax havens, it's completely at odds with their public image in the real world. And this leak peels away that public image. Included in this recent dump, you find members of the Trump administration, including Gary Cohn, the chief economic advisor to the president, and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, squirreling money away offshore. You have Kremlin money by way of billionaire Yuri Milner, some of which was used to buy stakes in Twitter and Facebook. These are eye-openers at this particular political moment in the United States. What kind of follow-up will there be for these nuggets of information? 
What is interesting is that when Wilbur Ross became Commerce Secretary, he divested of a lot of his companies and he was praised in his confirmation hearing for doing so. But he kept nine companies and four of those nine companies are the ones that connect him with the Kremlin. In the case of Yuri Milner, we knew that he had invested heavily in Facebook and in Twitter. What we didn't know and what these documents reveal is that for those investments, he had significant backing from financial institutions and banks that are owned by the Russian government and that are widely considered to be instruments of the Kremlin for their own strategic purposes. There is no evidence in these documents that the Kremlin was using Yuri Milner for strategic purposes, but we have to look at the current political climate, the context of what is going on. Forgive me for paraphrasing, but as I look at the stories that have emerged and of the responses from the principles named within them, the reaction from the Wilbur Rosses and Gary Cohens of the world is approximately, yeah, so, you've caught me observing the law. In the case of Gary Cohn, it's interesting because his offshore connections have to do with his past as an executive at Goldman Sachs. And what he says is, like, this is how the world works. And my question to him is, if this is how the world works in which multinational companies and wealthy individuals can go offshore and get their taxes cut to virtually zero, what money are you going to use in the new administration to pay for the infrastructure, the hospitals, the schools, the roads, and more that you have promised the American people? All right, so I'm going to assume that these records came into your hands because somebody in the Caribbean leaked them to you, a gigantic data dump. What is the process of looking at all of these corporate entities and the transactions between them and then actually seeing any of these pictures emerge with famous names and faces attached to them? Well, it's been the year-long process. We activated the same network that we had used in the Panama Papers, but we realized that we needed to expand it and we needed to have people in places that we hadn't needed before, like Turkey, for example. These leaks are chaotic when they first arrive. The biggest challenge was to put it in a readable format, in a platform where you can do searches like if you were searching in Google. So our partners anywhere in the world can be searching the documents at the same time for people and companies of interest to their countries. We also want those reporters to be talking to one another. So we provide a platform that looks a little bit like a social media wall, and that's where all the activity and the sharing and the frustration of the searches and the reporting takes place. I could not help but notice that one of your journalistic collaborators this time around was the New York Times, which was conspicuously not in the consortium for the Panama Papers. What changed? I think they changed. The New York Times came to us after the Panama Papers, and they requested access, and we gave it to them. And they told us if anything else comes forward, we would love to be included, and we want to have this experience of a global collaboration. So we took them on their offer, and we said, we don't want your stars. We want the best team players that you've got. And they delivered on that, and you can see it in, in the front pages of this week. 
Now, I want to ask about how these stories have been spooled out. It seems, as with the Panama Papers, the revelations are coming out a little bit at a time. Is that a marketing strategy to maintain interest? Well, when you have 382 reporters from more than 90 media organizations working in silence for more than a year, writing their stories, reporting, researching, there's a lot of stories. These are 13 and a half million records, and we're probably only scratching the surface. What you are seeing is a carefully planned rollout of stories. Sports figures and celebrities are in the data. We're not telling those stories first. Let's tell first the stories of elected officials, multinationals, and then we'll roll out all the rest of the stories. I think the instincts of the public and even of newsrooms is to look for the juiciest tidbit, the most infuriating corruption, the most high-profile misconduct. And so far, the Paradise Papers have not really yielded a whole lot of that. I think uh, if we are not infuriated when we see that a company like Apple that had been cracked down on for its abusive tax avoidance strategies goes on and does exactly the same two or three years later, maybe that's something that we have to think as a society. Are we okay with the wealthiest escaping all rules? What we now hope is that people will make the connection between the stories they are reading about hypocrisy and conflicts of interest and secrecy and their own lives. And when they read those stories and they wonder who's the victim here, that they can quickly realize that the victim is them. Marina, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Marina Walker is the deputy director for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. So, after the Panama and Paradise Papers opened our eyes to the lifestyles of the rich and famous, we've still glimpsed only the tip of the Bilderberg. So says Brooke Harrington, professor of economic sociology at Copenhagen Business School and author of Capital Without Borders. According to Harrington, if we really want to understand the world of ultra-high net worth, we have to look past the wealthy to the network of wealth managers responsible for keeping capital intact. Brooke, welcome to On the Media. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. You have a kind of remains-of-the-day approach to this, or upstairs-downstairs. You look at the system of wealth and privilege through the prism of the support staff, the occupation called wealth management. What is wealth management? A wealth manager is a professional, usually from a background in the law or accounting, who specializes in helping ultra-wealthy people put assets offshore. It started in the Middle Ages in England with the first trust funds and trustees that were created. But it was only in like the last 25 years that a profession called wealth management has coalesced around service to the ultra-rich. To do the job well, you have to be super competent, but also extremely sympathetic. It's a very unusual combination of skills. Like no one asks their surgeon to be a super sympathetic person. All that we ask of our surgeons is just be good at, at removing my brain tumor. You don't have to hold my hand and talk to me about my family problems. But the wealth manager has to do all those things and excel at them without rolling your eyes at unacknowledged privilege or 
in some way letting on that you might not take them seriously. This suggests a kind of, uh, well, a literal subservience and the indignity that goes with it. Your research shows that indignity is indeed often a part of the package. Many of the people I spoke to complained bitterly about an attitude of like, I have the money and you don't, so you're my puppet. One of the first stories I ever heard was from a lady in Switzerland who said, yeah, I had a client call me saying that I had to help her find her lost bracelet. And I said, well, do you know where you lost it? And she said, well, I'm outside a restaurant in London. And this woman was based in Switzerland, the wealth manager. So the client was asking her wealth manager to find a piece of jewelry that was lost in a different country. The client couldn't even name the restaurant or the street that she was on. So somehow the wealth manager triangulated on the the general location of, of the client, sent some people out, found the bracelet, and billed the client for it. But it, it was that sort of hand-holding that was astounding, what some of the people I interviewed called social work for the rich. I talked about remains of the day. Now I'm thinking of Smithers, the major domo of Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. Is it a world of Smithers? In a way, yeah. It's, it's a world of much more straight faiths and less overtly obsequious Smitherses. And the notion is to look at the gross amount of assets and income and to shield them to the degree legally possible and sometimes extra legally possible from taxation and from just simply the view of the outside world. That might also include debt avoidance or not wanting to pay divorcing spouses, wanting to disinherit your children, wanting to dodge trade restrictions. There are all kinds of things that offshore can help you get away with and Tax is just the tip of the iceberg. Is everybody in the business a crook? I would say very few people in the business are crooks in the sense that it's extremely important to do this job well that you don't break the law. Because even if you're only charged with an offense, it's a disaster for your career. Even if you win, the game is over because you've lost your secrecy. There's a wealth management firm in the UK whose motto could serve as the motto for the entire industry. And it's, I want to be invisible. That's what they're selling to clients. And that is what the wealth management industry itself tries to emulate. And so far, you know, 18 months plus since the Panama Papers broke, I'm aware of only one instance in which anyone has even attempted to bring a prosecution, and that's in India. Given that it was the largest data dump in the entire world and practically everyone was pawing through it looking for something to pin charges on, I think that's pretty extraordinary. One striking aspect of all of this culture is that laws apply generally to citizens. But if you are wealthy enough, you can be from every place but no place at all at the same time. You can sort of choose your location anywhere in the world to operate essentially out of the reach of not only your own government, but any government. One of the people I interviewed in Switzerland said she found her clients actually kind of scary and dangerous because for them, national governments are just playthings. They, they buy and sell them at will. Heaven help you if you're a refugee or an immigrant because 
all the doors are closed to you. But if you're wealthy enough, they roll out the red carpet for you. Companies and, and countries compete to get you new passports. They've actually managed to create a situation of representation without taxation. I have a check that I have to write to the Internal Revenue Service, and I am seething that various kinds of oligarchs and corporations can shirk their responsibilities to whomever they otherwise would owe taxes to. But in the overall scheme of things, against the whole world economy, is what is not paid kind of a drop in the bucket? Does it matter? I think it matters a lot. I mean, the big lie is that we're all sort of self-made individuals and everything that happens to us is a result of our own personal choices, as though we don't use the roads and the internet that was created, you know, from the taxpayer-funded DARPA net. I don't know about you, but I went to public schools. We are the product of investments that society has made in the future. And until recently, the social contract has meant that we're obligated to pay forward so that other people can benefit from living in our society just as we did. If people break that social contract to enrich themselves, pretty soon things start to fall apart. You get sort of French Revolution-type conditions. If we can agree that these multi-layered offshore schemes are antithetical to general equity, morality, and the operation of a society through taxation, what can be done? I don't think any of the effective answers are legislative because wealth managers have 24-7, 365 to invent clever ways to get around whatever law you put up as an obstacle. And more importantly, they have the eager cooperation of many countries to help them write laws that are tailor-made to the interests of their clients. In fact, many wealth managers are themselves tapped to directly write the laws of offshore jurisdictions. How do you force people to pay their fair share? Is it doable? I don't think enforcement and forcing are going to work. Many of the people we're talking about have more wealth than the GDP of small countries. So nobody forces them to do anything. I think short-term and long-term, there are some social forces that you can harness to bring about change. I'm old enough to remember a time when it was considered patriotic to pay your fair share of taxes. That changed starting in about the 80s, but that's relatively recent in the grand scheme of things. I believe it could be turned around. The other thing is, rather than focusing on the wealthy people themselves who benefit from these offshore schemes, recognize that they're not doing this themselves that they're not inventing these offshore schemes. They're paying people to do it. And so if you want the offshore schemes to stop, you have to shift focus and look at the professionals who make it happen. Because without them, the whole offshore system falls apart. People who can't find their own bracelets outside restaurants in London are not masterminding multi-layered offshore schemes. I would say about 25% of the people I interviewed were really conscience-stricken about the nature of their work. They could really see that it was making the world a worse place to deprive states of tax revenue. And of course, they were instrumental in making that happen. I believe that those are the John Doe's of the future, you know, the, the people who leaked the Panama Papers. There's still lots of leaks to come, and, and pretty soon there won't be any place to hide. Thank you, Brooke. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. 
Brooke Harrington is a professor of sociology at Copenhagen Business School and author of Capital Without Borders, Wealth Managers, and The 1%. Your new duties will include answering Mr. Burns' phone, preparing his tax return, moistening his eyeballs, assisting with his chewing and swallowing, lying to Congress, and some light typing. Coming up, the press gangs up on a bully. Woohoo! Or, uh oh. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. For the last 20 years, the media business has been crumbling like a stale pie crust. Centuries of obscene profitability have given way to an ongoing struggle just to break even. So more and more, both legacy media and digital newbies have looked toward deep-pocketed ownership with the fortunes to weather the ups and downs, mostly downs, of the business. The Chicago Sun-Times newspaper has been sold to a group of investors that includes a former Chicago City Council member. The newspaper assets of the Washington Post are being bought by none other than Jeff Bezos. He is- it appears Las Vegas casino mogul Sheldon Allison could be the new owner of the Las Vegas Review Journal. This sometimes hasn't ended well. Real estate developer Sam Zell bought the Chicago Tribune and treated it like a shopping mall relaunch. Sheldon Adelson bought his hometown Las Vegas Review-Journal to stop getting nasty coverage in the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And now comes Joe Ricketts, who eight months ago bought the Gothamist network of hyperlocal online publications. Billionaire Joe Ricketts shut down two of his popular local news sites yesterday, one week after his editorial staff voted to unionize. Seven city-focused publications were simply turned off. Julia Wick was, up until that moment, editor-in-chief of one of those sites, LAist. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Before you ever heard Joe Ricketts' name, the Gothamist publications were a little nervous about the online publishing environment. What was happening at the time last March when the site was sold? After Gawker, I think almost anyone who's at a small publication that doesn't have some giant corporate backing, you were scared because you suddenly were incredibly aware that one rich person not liking the content could sue you into oblivion. One way to inoculate against the whims of an angry rich person is to have a rich person of your own with deep enough pockets to fend off a lawsuit or at least not shut publications down in the face of litigation. So you are sitting in your office one day last March and get an email that the Gothamist Network has been sold to this guy, Joe Ricketts. What was your thought? We didn't know what it would mean for us. We didn't know what it would mean for the future of the sites. And we didn't really know anything about Joe Ricketts. As 
terrified as I am of Peter Thiel, I felt just as scared about this guy. And it didn't take long before things began to happen under the new regime that made you even nervouser. Prominent among them was the deletion, not by the new owner, but of the former owner, Jake Dobkin, of the references to previous stories about your new owner, Joe Ricketts. They were either changed or deleted off the site altogether? The rationale for that was like the Bloomberg networks, which don't cover Bloomberg. As a media entity owned by Joe Ricketts, we shouldn't cover Joe Ricketts, which is reasonable enough in theory. Although not true that Bloomberg does cover Bloomberg, but you can kind of understand the theory behind it, I guess, except that doesn't include erasing previous reporting. What were you and your colleagues saying to one another when you realized right off the bat that that was taking place? It was really scary to us because we didn't know whether or not it was going to be a slippery slope. We didn't know if this was the beginning of an Orwellian memory hole or if those were going to be the only things to disappear off the site. And shortly thereafter, the staff began to think about what can we do to protect ourselves against the erosion of the Gothamist way of doing things. What form did these conversations take? Members of our New York office had already been talking about unionizing prior to the sale. But the sale really kicked it into overdrive and made it feel much more urgent. Right away, our New York office was met with a pretty strong anti-union campaign. Something our bosses told us was that Mr. Ricketts was philosophically opposed to unions, and that should be kind of reason enough for the sites not to have any sort of unionization campaign, which seemed very unlike the Gothamist way of doing things, which would be to question authority, to probe further, to agitate for what we felt was right. It all happened so fast. Yes. They voted to unionize. And a week later, 116 journalists were all laid off. Do you have any insight as to whether he made this move because it was going to turn a crappy business into an even crappier business? Or out of just pure spite? Or whether there's some third explanation? I've never met Joe Ricketts, so... I can't pretend to know what his motivations are for anything. But he had just bought the Gothamist Network seven or so months before. He presumably spent several million dollars to purchase our sites, which were at the time profitable, to then shut them down a couple of months later. Seems a strange way of doing business. On November 2nd, you get an email and your job has disappeared. But that's not the only thing that disappeared. Please tell me about the archive. So we actually found out we'd all lost our jobs when the sites went down. Our archives were later restored, largely, I think, due to public outcry. But when the sites were first closed, all of our sites were just replaced with a letter from Joe Ricketts informing readers that he had made the very difficult decision to close Gothamist and DNA Info. For us at LAS, 13 years of reporting were gone. The archive disappeared wiped from history. On a personal level, that felt like retribution. You have a hundred-some fire journalists who are now all about to go look for work with our clips wiped off the internet. But to me, that wasn't even the really terrifying and horrific thing about the archives going down. We've 
been doing local reporting for more than a decade, exhaustively covering the minutia of daily life in our cities and the minutia of City Hall. And the idea that in a couple of days, when someone goes to Google something about a public official, all that reporting is just gone, like it never happened. It's really, really scary. It really drove home the fragility of all the news sites we rely on. And then there's the ongoing coverage, which is no longer ongoing. What's the effect not only on your former readers, but on the ecosystem for Los Angeles journalism? We were a small site. We were pretty scrappy, but we also broke a lot of news in L.A. The L.A. Times unendorsed a city council candidate who was very charismatic and very popular and poised to unseat an incumbent. After L.A.S. found and published his crazy history of online comments, we were the first ones to cover Romulo Avelica Gonzalez, an L.A. father who was detained by ICE while dropping his young daughters off at school. Those are just a couple of examples, but it's coming at a time when a lot of other media forces in L.A. are also fragile or having their own struggles. Our friends at L.A. Weekly were sold two or three weeks ago by Voice Media to a newly formed LLC, and all that's known about it is it's associated with a weed lawyer. They don't know who owns them, which is scary. And the L.A. Times is actually having their own unionization campaign that's been met with a lot of union-busting tactics from their corporate owners. And what about you? A week ago you had a job, now you don't. What's next? The ground hasn't quite settled yet. It's been kind of a crazy few days. But the last couple of days I've gotten dozens of text messages and Facebook messages and emails from sources on stories checking in and thanking me for whatever I had written about them and saying the fact that we covered it mattered to them. I hope to find another reporting job where I can keep telling their stories and other people's stories. Well, Julia, I wish you the best of luck, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Until a week ago, Julia Wick was editor-in-chief of LAist. We contacted Joe Ricketts for comment, but received no response. And in other tyrant news, when Walt Disney Company didn't like an L.A. Times investigative series about its undue influence on local government around Disneyland, it decided to fight back. It blacklisted the Times from press screenings of its films, including the hit Thor Ragnarok. As KCRW Public Radio reported, This is a bald attempt to try to influence future coverage, news coverage, by the L.A. Times by punishing their access to movies. If you aren't aware, in Ragnarok, the mighty Thor finds himself in a deadly gladiatorial contest that pits him against the Incredible Hulk, his former ally and fellow Avenger. So, yeah, one media titan battling another... No irony there or anything, but plenty of stupidity for three reasons. First, the stunt simply called massive attention to the very reporting Disney didn't like. It overlooked the reason for press screeners in the first place to generate free publicity for Disney's own movies. And for good measure, it antagonized other media organizations who resented the bullying of their colleagues. 
culture journalists from the Washington Post, AV Club, the New York Times, and Flavor Wire, as well as the LA Film Critics Association, the New York Film Critics Circle, the Boston Society of Film Critics, and the National Society of Film Critics, jointly agreed to boycott new Disney releases and or exclude them from annual awards consideration. A pretty dramatic show of solidarity. One might even be tempted to say cinematic. I need to stop her here and now. To prevent Ragnarok, the end of everything. So they're putting together a team. Here we go. The battle was fierce, but brief. Within two days, Disney caved, and it was all high fives among the Avengers. Who doesn't like to see a bully get his comeuppance? But at what cost? In order to back Disney down, competing media organizations had to band together and act as one with a shared agenda in more or less precisely the fashion the anti-press political right always claims the media do. When the president is calling you an enemy of the people, consortiums of retaliation are what you call bad optics. Furthermore, the boycotters used editorial coverage, or the withholding of it, as their mighty sword, which is usually a clear-cut ethical violation. Sometimes it's called extortion. Now, I won't pretend not to be thrilled at Disney's humiliation in this case, and I won't spoil the Ragnarok outcome between Thor and the Hulk, but let me just say, in life and in movies with sequel possibilities, there is room for ambiguity. And you and I had a fight recently. Did I win? More to the point, did anybody win? Coming up in Sweden, Syrian refugees pour into the West, the Wild West. This is on the media. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. In an earlier segment, you heard economic sociology professor Brooke Harrington of Copenhagen Business School say this. The big lie is that we're all sort of self-made individuals and everything that happens to us is a result of our own personal choices. From her academic perch in Denmark, she was describing the myth of self-reliance, a peculiarly American concept that holds little allure in Scandinavia. Indeed, as OTM producer Michael Lowinger recently discovered in a visit to Sweden, the very meaning of the Wild West is turned on its head in a place where what is prized is not independence, but cooperation and shared responsibility for all who come there. In the middle of nowhere southern Sweden, there's a popular Wild West theme park called High Chaparral. Blonde families travel down here in the summer to act out the rough and tumble life they see in the old cowboy films. I met many Swedes who had never visited the United States before, and yet they spoke of the Old West with deep affection. It's so cool. You could do so much with so little at that time. I love everything about it. 
In the 1970s, when westerns were all the rage here, the park's founder, Big Bent, set out to make Sweden's first western film. He'd built an old frontier town film set, complete with a general store, a saloon, and an old bank on a dirt road. And they built up this main street that is still the main street today. And they filmed this movie, and it turned out to be a complete flop. Emil Erlinson is Big Bent's grandson and the current owner of High Chaparral, which has since expanded into a bona fide amusement park. Like his late grandfather, Emil lives and breathes this stuff. He goes everywhere dressed up as a frontier patriarch with a 10-gallon hat and a sheriff's badge. The theme park gets its name from an American TV show from the 1970s, which follows the Cannon family as they fend off hostile tribes and rough it out on their frontier ranch. We came here to settle this Arizona territory. We're staying. Mr. Cannon, you don't seem to understand. We've got a major Indian uprising on our hands. High Chaparral became incredibly popular here in Sweden. Everybody watched it. Probably more popular here than in the United States. Dag Blanc teaches North American studies at Uppsala University. In particular, one character, Manolito, the Mexican guy in, in the show who was a heartbreaker here. There was even a Swedish song written about him by one of the most well-known and beloved singers in Sweden, Lille Babs. I went to High Chaparral in the summer of 2016 because I had heard that Emil had invited Syrian refugees to live at the park. That refugees would find sanctuary in a Swedish Western theme park actually makes quite a bit of sense, as you'll soon see. During my visit, I met Aboud al-Ghazawi, a curious Syrian guy. He had just arrived, so we toured the park together with some insight provided by a passing cowboy enthusiast, Johan Hellström. I have a gun belt with cartridges in. I have uh, my holster back on my uh, rump, so to speak, because when I work, I don't want the gun to get in the way. Uh, I just want to ask you some questions about history. Yeah. We are from Syria, yes, and when we see movies about cowboy, we just say... Uh, Aboud like, asks uh, Johan if the real cowboys were as violent as they seem in the movies. Between the towns, it was generally lawless. There were bandits, people who wanted to rob you, kill you, take your stuff. It was just after the civil war. It was unrealistic rest in the entire country. Like in Syria, everybody is unsafe. But what we see in the movies, I think that's a misrepresentation of the cowboy that you should shoot anyone on sight that you don't like. Yeah, that's that's what I, we know about cowboy. Next, we stopped at the open-air theater, home of the famous High Chaparral Wild West stunt show, offering epic battles between heroic lawmen and dastardly outlaws. In Syria, we have more explosion. That's so little for us. <laughs> yeah, we have boom from the sky. And, oh, that's normal. <laughs> I mean, you're coming from a real war. Yeah. And then here we have tourists who are paying money to see a fake war. What do you think about that? It's bullshit. <laughs> really? Aboud arrived here as a refugee in 2015, the year Sweden, along with Germany, asserted itself as the preeminent safe haven of Europe. Yesterday, Sweden became the first European country to announce they will give permanent resident status to all Syrian refugees who apply and their families. Sweden takes in the highest number of refugees per capita in Europe. 163,000 individuals applied for asylum here in Sweden 
a country of 9.8 million people. That's 163,000 people in 2015 alone, 50,000 from Syria. In the last five years, the U.S. has accepted less than 20,000 Syrians, and that number will likely plunge thanks to the president's travel ban. How did small, homogenous Sweden come to bear the weight of the refugee crisis, while the U.S., the melting pot, shrugged it off? One answer, perhaps, lies in our competing depictions of the Old West. To most Americans, a glorification of the visceral, brutal masculinity of the cowboy. Think John Wayne or Gary Cooper, gritty men who express themselves not with fancy prose, but 38 caliber bullets from revolvers akimbo. America's self-image owes much to the pop culture archetypes and imagery of the Old West, defined by saloon brawls, clashes with the Native Americans, and epic journeys across the frontier. The virtues of rugged individualism, the belief that every man best look out for himself. Now and you stay out of this. All of you. I don't want you with me. I'll need you for what I gotta do. Sometimes our hero is portrayed as a poet or a crooner, but he's still a nation of one. Here's Roy Rogers singing a cowboy ballad in 1940's The Border Legion. That we rise and fall on our own determination, our own grit, jibes with the idea that the poor fail because of their own bad judgment or shoddy work ethic. Reagan, who rose to fame as a Western actor, artfully fused the Old West with this political MO early in his presidency. I've been looking forward to coming home to the great American West. It was 1982, and he was campaigning for Wyoming Senator Malcolm Wallop as his White House was dismantling many of the nation's social welfare programs. You and your forebears, as Malcolm said, tamed a wild frontier. And believe it or not, you did it without an area redevelopment program or urban renewal. Individual freedom, individual integrity, and individual ingenuity made us the greatest country the world has ever known. Meanwhile, I met Swedes at High Chaparral who had drawn a different lesson from the Old West. Emil's grandfather, Big Bent, was inspired to start the park because of the history of Swedish emigration to the U.S. Back in the 19th century, a devastating wave of poverty and famine swept Sweden, particularly the region where High Chaparral resides today. If you were living here in the early 1800s, you would be a very, very, very poor man. So over a quarter of Sweden's population picked up and left for the U.S. The Emigrants by author Wilhelm Moberg, voted the most influential Swedish novel series of the 20th century, helped define the Swedish trek into the American West. Two films based on the novels detailed the perilous ocean crossing and the cruelty of the pioneer's life. After staking out property in what would become Minnesota, the film's heroes work with other pioneers to stave off starvation and survive the harsh winter. The story shows none of the Hollywood cowboys' fantastical feats, instead focusing on the conditions that many American pioneers actually faced. Western historian Frederick Jackson Turner wrote in 1893 that American democracy was formed by the American frontier, that in fact it was the root of American egalitarianism because it took collective effort to survive hardships so severe. 
Here's Professor Dag Blanc again. Because the frontier is the great equalizer. There, it doesn't matter who you are, what background you're from. There, what counts is if you can work and if you can contribute. You needed to work together, in a way, to build up a new society. Historians estimate that a third of cowboys in Texas were black or Latino. Ranch work was among the few jobs available to minorities following the Civil War. But people of color are rarely depicted as good guys in the classic westerns. In 1964, when President Lyndon Johnson, a Texan, struggled to end poverty and expand voting rights, his view of the Old West would have been familiar to the Swedes. We didn't build this nation by everyone scratching and clawing for himself. We built it like we built the West, by pitching in together. Johnson had just signed the Economic Opportunity Act, the centerpiece of his war on poverty. And he was looking to continue the flow of funds into other great society programs like Medicare and Medicaid. However, after Reagan flipped the script 18 years later, the political references to the West turned from blue to red. I've been called a maverick. Someone who who marches to the beat of his own drum. John McCain has always defined himself as a righteous nonconformist by calling himself a maverick, cowboy slang for a calf that roams from the herd. But we're getting them out. They go into jails, and then they're going back to their country. And President Donald Trump invoked the frontier to dramatize his campaign of using police against MS-13, the American gang associated with El Salvador. This is like I'd see in a movie. They're liberating the town. Like in the old Wild West, right? Of course, these political touchstones feature little mention of the public infrastructure that powered industry in the West, the tribes murdered or forcefully removed from their land, or the federal programs that spurred Western growth in the first place. No, our rugged heroes succeeded all on their own. And today we can too. As for Abud, the Syrian asylum seeker from the start of this story, he could not have made his epic journey to the wild west of High Chaparral without the help of other people. In the years since I visited the park, Abud's English has weakened as he took Swedish classes, so he told me the story through a Swedish translator. He dropped out of college and emptied his bank account in the fall of 2015 when the violence in Damascus became unbearable. His father and sister stayed home with Abud's mother, who was suffering from cancer. He and his friend Eamon managed to make it to Izmir in Turkey before the worst of their trouble began. A smuggler agreed to take them across the Mediterranean to Greece in the middle of the night. They were crammed onto a boat with around 75 other refugees. Abud heard people praying, reading from the Quran, children crying. Ninety minutes later, when the boat was far from the coast, they heard a chilling sound. We heard the invoice. The boat had burst a hole. It was sinking. Eamon yelled to Abud to take off his life jacket and jump in the water. It would be easier to swim that way. They swam toward a tiny light on the horizon. They couldn't tell if it was Turkey, Greece, another boat, but they kept going. Three hours later, they washed up on the Greek island Chios. They still had their phones, wallets, and passports, which they had wrapped in plastic. A week later, they reached the border of Macedonia and Serbia at sunset. They had heard that Serbian cabs were dangerous, but exhausted from walking as the sun went down, they decided to take the risk with four of their friends they had made along the way. They split into two cars. Abud's driver, Sadiq, seemed trustworthy. He was Muslim and he spoke Arabic. Sadiq literally means innocent in Arabic. After a couple hours on the highway, the two cabs detoured into the woods. 
Then, the driver Sadiq began making phone calls in Serbian, which freaked out Abud. Where are you taking us? he asked. Sadiq and the other cabbies stopped in the woods and ordered them to get out. Save for the headlights, it was pitch black. Two large Serbian men with knives were standing at the side of the road. Give us all your stuff, they said. Luckily, Eamon had been Syria's number one kickboxer for his age group four years in a row. So Eamon fought three at once. They shook off the assailants long enough to begin a sprint through the pitch black woods. Soon they were stopped by a flashlight. Police, stop! It was a policeman. They begged for help. But the Serbian thieves bribed the cop. Abud and Eamon successfully offered their own bribe, 200 euros each for a ride to a nearby city. As they drove out of the woods, Abud saw their four friends running on the side of the road. Abud gave the cop 200 euros for each of them and they all drove off to safety. Once in Sweden, Abud bounced around a couple refugee parks before he arrived at High Chaparral, the park originally built in honor of Sweden's new beginning in the Old West. And Emil opened up High Chaparral to Syrian refugees because he was inspired by his grandfather Big Ben, who during the Balkan Wars of the 90s turned the park's vacant hotels into a refugee camp. Because you can't do anything by yourself. You have to help. Emil did not pay out of pocket to run the refugee camp last year. The Swedish government offset much of the cost. It was a shared responsibility, which Emil believes will bear fruit for Sweden. You have to be like a visionary. You have to be very driven to actually take the trip because it's a dangerous trip for you and your family. It's often very good people who want to make an effort to get a better life. A year after High Chaparral took in the Syrians, Swedish parliament pulled back the reins on its immigration policy, deporting tens of thousands of refugees. But Abud was granted asylum, and the Swedish government began paying for his housing and Swedish language classes as he prepares to start medical school. This past summer, as the park closed its refugee camp, Abud worked at High Chaparral as a janitor dressed in full cowboy getup. Between shifts, he was instructed to sneak up behind Swedish children and pretend to rob them at gunpoint, shouting, Put him up, little cowboy. <laughs> you, you identify as a cowboy? Absolute, man. <laughs> if the image of a cowboy Syrian refugee is a perplexing association for you, then my point is made. The individualistic and at times ruthless portrayal of the Old West by Hollywood and American politicians feeds a cold and lonely worldview. And who exactly does that narrative serve? As James Baldwin once noted, it's just one of many fantastical stories that wallpapered over a shameful history. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. The Hollywood ideal of the West that shapes America's identity obstructs our ability to see ourselves in the struggles of others, to empathize at a moment when millions of people need a new beginning. For On the Media, I'm Michael Loinger. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Loinger, and Leia Fetter. We had more help from Monique Laborde, John Hanrahan, Kate Brown, and Sarah Chadwick-Gibson. And our show was edited this week by our executive producer, Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. 
I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.